Welcome to Finding Holiness, where we delve into timeless Torah wisdom, revealing the sacred in everyday moments. Join us on a journey to elevate your spirituality and discover holiness in every aspect of life. I'm your host, Rabbi David Kadosh, and together, let's embark on a path of spiritual exploration. I hope you enjoy this next episode. Okay, we are live. everyone. Welcome to... Uh... Another edition of our Thursday night Parashat Shavua class. Um, we are studying Parashat Teruma. We'd like to thank our uh, dear sponsors, Mr. and Mrs. Leon and Denise Malech, for sp- sponsoring tonight's Shi'ur, Leu Nishmat, Denise's father, Yitzchak Leib, Ben Matilda, Zichroli Bracha. <coughs> May the words of Torah that we say today be Leu Nishmato, Tin Afshot Serura, Bistrora Haim. Parashat uh, Terumah and Tetzaveh are known for the fact that they provide detailed instructions of the building and construction of the Mishkan, and as well as the Kelim that are going to be used in the Mishkan. And uh, it really highlights the importance <coughs> of the craftsmanship and the dedication, specifically by Betzalel ben Uri ben Hur, who was the, uh, it's called the architect the one who drew up the plans. You always need one of those when it comes to building. And uh, the Torah tells us, begins the parasha, Tell B'nai Israel to bring me teruma. Teruma are gifts. From every person whose heart moves him, <coughs> that's where you shall accept, you shall take my teruma. This is the gift. And gold, silver, copper, so on and so forth. You shall make for me a sanctuary and I shall dwell there. So a lot of questions that are asked in this opening passage of the parasha. Today, we're going to be learning the words of Rabbi Baruch Rosenblum Shlita. And number one, is why is the word terumah repeated so many times? Why is it repeated three times? <clears throat> As well, what's the meaning of ve'ichuli terumah? What's Hashem saying? She'll take for me. Should have said ve'ichu elai. Take to me the gifts to build a mishkan. Elai would have been proper usage of, of the word. But what's ve'ichuli? Uh, there, are, there are three instances where the word veichu is used twice before the offering, once after the offering, and the mefarshim go at length. You can you, pages and pages of commentary of commentary on these words veichu uh, that that offer answers to these questions. Um, if you look specifically, the first two of these gifts, first two offerings are attributed to Hashem specifically, and the third one is more general in nature. So the chida. He says the following explanation. He says, if you look in the Targum, it will tell you that who were the ones who delivered the fine stones, the Avne Shoham and the Avne Miluim. He writes, quoting the Targum, it was none other than the Ananea Kavod, the clouds of heaven. The heaven delivered these Avne Shoham, these precious stones, and as well as many of the perfumes and the oils were brought from Ganaiden. He brings down. So there were heavenly gifts. And the Nasi of each tribe, the prince of each tribe, would bring these items from the Mishkan and, they, and publicizing that these are gifts from HaKadosh Baruch Hu. 
So, tikhu et terumati, I want you to take my terumah, HaKadosh Baruch Hu is saying, because I've also offered, I've also brought gifts. I want you to take this that I've sent through the heavens, the fine stones, the perfumes, the oils that you're going to use in Mishkan, you're going to bring to me and you're going to contribute, contribute it back to the construction of the Mishkan. Rashi, in this week's parasha, the opening, brings a Yerushalmi. And he notes that there were three donations. We're going to expand on this idea. There are three donations to the Mishkan. Two of them were a fixed amount. Two of them were actual set amounts. A half shekel was given for the Adanim. The Adanim are the pedestals or the bases of the Mishkan. There was another half shekel that, that was given for the Korbanot. That's the Machasita shekel that we read about in last week's parasha, Parashat Shekalim. And we're going to read again officially in two weeks in Parashat Kitisa. And then there was a third donation. And the third donation was the core of the Mishkan was a variable amount. There was no set number. Each person decided how much they wanted to give to the Mishkan, whether it was in the form of money, whether it was in precious metals, gold, silver, or any other material. And that's the meaning, me'et kolish asher libo. From whatever man wants to give, that's regarding the third type of donation. There's a question that is raised by the Saba of Kelm, the altar of Kelm, Rav Simcha Zissel Zivbroida. He lived in the 1800s. He was uh, the student of Rav Yisrael Salanter. He says, why was the contribution towards a Mishkan, this third donation, why was it an arbitrary amount? Why couldn't it be something set? Why did HaKadosh Baruch Hu not prescribe exactly how much he wanted everybody to donate? for the building of the Mishkan, like he did for the other two gifts. When we find, when we're going through the um, the, the following parashiyot, we're going to see a lot, a discussion of Nedivud, Nedavala Hashem, the donors to the Mishkan. Nobody was forced. Everybody gave, you know, willingly, generously. No one looked at what the other people gave. Why was it not prescribed according to what was needed to build the Mishkan? Think about nowadays we have these charity campaigns, right? Yeah, you get that link. Please support Jewish day schools. Please support the building of the mikveh. Please support this kolel. There's always a number there, right? There's always a, we want to reach half a million dollars. We want to reach one million dollars. Now, they're not forcing anybody to give, but at least there's a number. This is what it's going to cost to build this mikveh. This is what it's going to cost to build this school or to, to, to reach our budget. This is what we need. So... Let's, let's put everything on the table. Hashem, this is what we're going to, Hashem should say, this is what we're going to need to build this Mishkan. Here's a set amount for everybody. Uh, everybody gives, and that's it. Why is it not like that? Why is it an arbitrary amount? Another question that he asks is on the first word of the parasha. The first word is Vaidaber. Vaidaber Hashem el Moshe Lemor. Now, generally, what is the difference between Vaidaber and Vayomer? Vaidaber is understood to be a harsher language. Dibur is a stronger language. And uh, Amira, Vayomer, is a softer tone. So normally, whenever you see Vaydaber, there's a strong command coming forth. Vayomer is something that is, is lighter. Kotomar lebet Yaakov, betaged livnei Israel. To the Jewish women, we speak softly. Kotomar. Says Ibalaturim, this is an exception. He writes in this week's parasha that the word vaydaber is not to be uh, understood as an expression of harsh language, but rather as a language of pius. 
Pius is appeasement or encouragement. And he gives an example when it comes to Yishayahu in, um, that we read, Nahamu, Nahamu, Ami, Dabberu, Alev Yerushalayim. There, after the destruction of the Beit Hamidash, Yishayahu saying, don't worry, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna rebuild together. And the word that's used is Dabberu. And even though Dabberu usually connotes a stronger language, it's Lashon of appeasement. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu was telling Moshe Rabbeinu, according to Balaturim, to support and encourage B'nai Israel to bring donations. That they should want to bring these gifts. That they shouldn't feel forced that they have to donate. Um, and, and, and he expands the Baal Turin by saying that, that uh, one of the, the main approach to support, as opposed to something that is done through pressure and through guilt, is, um, when, uh, is dealing with them softly. It's a good, good piece of advice whenever a person is involved in fundraising. And, and, and meeting with potential donors. Never give the impression that you're, that you're forcing them. You have to give. Right? But rather, speak to them softly. Let, explain to them that their, their, their contribution is important. And encourage them to give. And that's usually what's going to get you, the, uh, the, hopefully, the money that, that you're looking for. But again, he asked, but why is this gift uh, a voluntar- voluntary and not according to a predetermined fee? Give, a, give an actual number. Why was, why was an element of nedivut, of donation, required? If you go back, we're going to get to the answer later, but if you go back to the final plagues in Egypt, when B'nai Yisrael left Mitzrayim, they were given an opportunity to borrow, and I say that in quotations, to borrow the riches of the Egyptians. This happened during the plague of darkness. Midrash tells us, that the Egyptians had special hiding spots for all of their precious metals, their gold, their silver, their diamonds. And all of a sudden, miraculously, all of these hiding spots were illuminated. And then the Jewish people were able to see and point them out. The Egyptians said, I got nothing, I got no gold, I got no pearls, I got nothing. And they said, oh, no, 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 I see them right there behind that closet over there. That's where they were. That's where they were. Right before they departed, they, they managed to accumulate all these all this wealth that were in the hiding spots of the Egyptians. It's like the x-ray machine at the airport. Right? You can try, you can try uh, hiding things as much as you want, okay? but you walk through that machine or the, your bag goes through, and uh, it's amazing how these machines are able to pinpoint, no matter how deep you bury that item, you can't carry, you can't carry that item, so they, they, they pull it out. They pull it out. Um, so B'nai Sel cleverly knew exactly where everything uh, was, and, and the Egyptians could not get away with it. When B'nai Sel left Egypt, the Gemara in Masechet Bechorot tells us, that even the laziest member, the one who didn't, who barely went into the homes of the Egyptians, he, he, most of the time he just laid back, the laziest Jew who didn't hustle walked away with 90 donkeys of riches. 90 donkeys, the laziest guy. And the people who were more committed and put more effort to the mission, they walked away with hundreds of wagons of gold and silver and much more. And they were, when they reached Yamsuf and Paro was on the, on the chase to get them back, he gave his army an incentive. And he said, if you manage to capture these people, I'm going to give you some of my own riches. And he loaded lots of money and gold on his, on his chariot. And the Egyptians started chasing, not giving up. You know, and, and the Midrash says that, that Hashem... Um, you know, you know, he, he or or the Egyptians could have just probably stolen the money from Paro and went back, but Hashem made it that there was this miraculous female horse, this mare, 
that was, that was riding ahead of the Egyptian cavalry. And the horses wanted to be with the female. So they just kept on chasing after this white, beautiful female horse uh, right into, the, into Yamsuf. Uh, and then at, at that moment, they all got, uh, they all got buried with the, with the water. And shortly after the, the Egyptians drowned, the sea began to float all of these treasures, the money, the gold, the jewelry, it was all there. Not only did the, did the Jews have their own gold and silver, they had more gold and silver. They gathered all of the spoils, they packed all of it together, and now the Midrash says that their donkeys was holding, were, were carrying two to three stories of gold and silver. Can you imagine how much, how much money that is? But for the next 40 years, they never once had to use one dollar of it. It was put in a, a GIC. Yeah, it was put in a long-term bond, 40-year bond. And uh, then the reason is because they never needed it. Because you had, you had man falling from the sky. You never needed to buy bread. You had a well that traveled with you throughout the desert, so you never needed to buy water. Uh, they received daily dry cleaning because their, their clothing never wore out. Uh, they were, it was tailored. Shoes never worn out. So you had, you had everyday uh, shoemaking services from the Ananea Kabod. You had air conditioning was free. The money was no good in the desert. It had no value. And so Bnei Israel exits Mitzrayim with this abundance of riches and wealth that, they, that the Mefarshim explained each one of them if they wanted to could have built a Mishkan on their own. They, could have built, they had enough money that every Jew could have built a Mishkan on their own. HaKadosh Baruch Hu should have, could have just said, everybody build me a Mikdash. I don't want just one. I want everyone. I want 600,000 Mikdashim. There was no need for donations. Except that Bnei Yisrael didn't, uh, didn't bring the required items on their own. So what does HaKadosh Baruch Hu says? Amalan HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Enatem evin shelachem. You're not bringing of your money. What you're bringing is the spoils that I gave you from the sea. So why are you hesitant? You didn't work hard for it. You received it as a gift. It was delivered to you right on your doorstep at the seashore. So all I ask, all I ask is to give me a little bit. The, the Sabah of Kelm, who we mentioned at the beginning of the, shur, of the Shi'ur, once wrote a letter to thank a Jew for giving a, a, a very big uh, donation to the building of a Talmud Torah. And after praising him, he asked, uh, he asked uh, the wealthy man to share Divrei Torah. And the, he brought up this, this story of the donations to the Mishkan. And the essence of the message was that when one receives everything from someone, or in this case, the Jews received everything from HaKadosh Baruch Hu, then there's no reason for the supplier, for God, to use language of support and encouragement and pius. Why, why, do I need, why do I need to convince them to give me something when I want to request something small in the future? Because the receiver has nothing without the person. The receiver, without Hashem, what do the Jewish people have? So why was there a need? And he's, he's, he's building his question. Why is there a need for God, like we said, by daber o lashon pius, that God was trying to convince them to give. But why do you even need convincing? Why do you need to have a soft and gentle request for them to give you money? The Zohar tells us, what does it mean, ish? Me'et kol ish asher libo. The Zohar says that the term ish signifies someone who is of importance, is chashivut. 
And not only that, Ish is someone who overcomes his evil inclination, is Yetzirah. So the donations, Me'et kol Ish libo, the donations will come from someone who overcame his evil inclination. I don't get it. What exactly did the Jewish people need to overcome? That they received a gift and now they're being asked to use a small portion of the gift that they got? They have no other expenses in the world? That's a Yetzihara? What is going on over here? So how do we make sense of this Zohar? Imagine you have a person, happens, in, in financial distress. He's suffering financially. He's got very, very little money. And he goes and he approaches a businessman for help. And he says, listen, I know you're in better financial shape than I am. I really need, I need 100,000 shekel. I need to pay mortgages. I need to pay school bills, tuition, taxes. I need 100,000 shekel. Can you please help me? I need to get out of this. So the guy says, come in, come in, sit down. I'm going to give you money. And he writes him a check, 360,000 shekel. Because thank you so much, but I only need 100,000 shekel. Why are you giving me 360,000 shekel? So he says, I know, but I'm giving you 260,000 to spare. Just in case you need it from the future, take it. So now six months later, the wealthy man, the generous friend returns and he goes up to the guy and he says, listen, I'm about to build a shul. I'm about to build a bed midrash in the neighborhood. Something that you're going to be using all the time. It's a new minyan. It's very exciting. And if you don't mind donating something towards a building campaign. So the guy says, me, I should donate money. It's all your money. Everything that you gave to me is yours. I don't have anything of my own. Of course I'm going to give. So, so the guy says, I, I'm not going to tell you how much. I'm not going to tell you how much to give. All I ask is that you give something. So again, says the Sabbath, what's the nimshal? Why does HaKadosh Baruch Hu again have to plead to the Jewish people to give something here? Everything they had was given to them on Yamsuf. On top of it was given to them in Egypt. Two to three stories worth of money. Do they really need to be strong and be like an ish here? And they need to overcome their evil inclination? Their Yetzihara? So, Rav Rosenblum says, indeed they do. And he says that there is a disease in our day and age. It's not, not just in our day and age. It's a disease even since the start of time. He called it Chemdat HaMamon. Chemdat HaMamon is the passion for money. Or more accurately, greed. That's the, uh, the official term. The Gemara tells us in Masech Psachim that King Menashe, who was a very evil king, he was the king of the Jewish people, he was very evil, uh, he would interpret the psukim in the Torah incorrectly and claim that Moshe Rabbeinu added words unnecessarily to the, to the text of the Torah. And one such pasuk was found in Parashat Vayetze. Vayelech Reuven ketzir chitim once at the time of the wheat harvest, Reuven went, and he found these flowers in the field. Everyone remember what I'm talking about? He found the flowers, yes. right? And he brought them to Leah. Eventually, Leah, okay, sold that, sold those flowers, gave, gave them to her sister so that she could be with, uh, so that Leah could be with Yaakov that night, and eventually that's how she had Yisachar. So the, the Gemara says that King Menashe says there's extra words in this pasuk. He says the words bime ketzir chitim in the days of the harvest, which is the end of the summer, because that's extra. Moshe Rabbeinu didn't need to write that. You think about it; he's got a good point. Why do I care if 
Reuven went at the end of the summer to grab these flowers. Do, do you care? I don't care if it was in April. I don't care if it was in November. Why do I care? He grabbed flowers. He brought it to, 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 to Leah's mom. The Gemara says, you're wrong. There's a reason. There's a reason why the Torah specifically, Moshe wrote, Bimeh Ketzirahitim. That the timing teaches us how careful Reuven was with the prohibition of theft. Because even as a small boy, he entered the field at the end of the season, once everything was picked, he would only take from what was left behind what was considered hefker, ownerless, abandoned, that's what he took to bring to his mother. And that's, that's the lesson. And Reuven was extremely uh, commended for this trait. The Midrash tells him that his father blessed him as worthy of the Bechorah, of the firstborn, because other firstborns were either thieves or had the potential to be a thief. And that potential comes from the fact that they were born first. Because the firstborn, for all of us, you know, that, that either are a firstborn or our parents to firstborns, firstborns feel a sense of entitlement. They're the first. Everything, at first, I got everything. And now all of a sudden someone else comes to me? No, I deserve it. I'm the first. I'm the, you know, I made my parents' parents. So there's a sense of entitlement. And they and and and, and they it's in, it's ingrained in them from birth. And after growing up, though that focus subsides, but the sense of entitlement doesn't. I still want it, and can easily lead them to taking things that that are undeserving to them. Maybe that's the reason why the firstborns get double because they know they're going to have that drive and to appease them. I'm just saying this on my own. I don't know if anyone talks about this, but it could be a reason. Could be a reason. So firstborns are so accustomed to getting what they want, they may actually eventually take it regardless of who it belongs to. So Chachamim actually learned a tremendous lesson from Mishle. The Pasuk says, famous, Shlomo Amelach famous in Mishle says, Teach a child in the way that he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. Teach your children well so that when they get older, they will still abide from your teaching. 300 years after Reuven picked those flowers in the field, Benesa reached the Jordan and they were ready to enter Israel. And what did the tribe of Reuven request when they reached the Jordan River? They requested green land for their sheep. Reuven was a wealthy tribe, so was God, and they had a lot of sheep, a lot of cattle. And they requested a lot of land. So they requested that they inherit the land on the east side of the Jordan. Everlayadim. Why did they need that land? And the answer is because it was so difficult to raise sheep and cattle in Eretz Israel, because it can easily roam to adjacent lots and the sheep are going to start eating from the grass of other people's property. And they didn't want that. They didn't want their sheep to steal. So therefore... Being that they didn't want to be uh, uh, embroiled in gezel and theft, Reuven, from a, uh, from, uh, he requested, I want to stay on this side where the fields are large, are vast, and my, my, my sheep will have room to roam. Reuven was taught to stay clear of theft from a young age, and it stuck with him and his, uh, with his descendants. The Midrash tells us that once a woman went to Rabbi Shimon Mechalafta and asked him, how long did it take God to create the world? And he said, it took him 
It took him six days. He created the world in six days. Okay, what does God do since that point? After six days. It's now five, seven. Well, what does God do now? Okay, he created the world in six days. Rabbi Shimon Mechalavta says, you know what he's doing? He sits and he creates ladders. He raises one and he lowers another. And he gives from one and he takes from another. In other words, God, like I mentioned earlier today, God is moving things around. Takes money here, moves over there, just making everything work. That's what God does. HaKadosh Baruch Hu wanted to give land to Reuven and God on the east side of the Jordan. So he took the land from the Midianim and he gave him. So we see that Reuven is being rewarded for his actions. The fact that he went 300 years before that, he made sure to take only during the end of the harvest season. He's being rewarded for that. Problem. The problem is that same Midrash, a few lines later, says that Reuven and God asked for land on the east bank. And that, and because of that, they were the first to be exiled out of Israel. The first people to be kicked out after the destruction and the exile, the Romans, all the, not the Romans, yeah, the Romans, Babylonians, Reuven and God, first one. If, the, if their intent was to avoid Gezil, and they were praised and rewarded to avoid, because they, they avoided theft, so why are they, all, why are they punished? What happened to the good things that they did? Look at them. What's Adikim? They don't want to go to Israel because they don't want to steal. Now you're, you're being punished. So the Midrash HaGadol says that there's, this shows us a sensitivity when making offense around the Torah. The tribes of Reuven and God had a problem with their decision making. Rather than asking for an inheritance in Israel, uh, sorry, rather than asking for an inheritance outside of Israel on the east side of the Jordan, they should have went to Moshe and posed the following question. Moshe, we have a lot of sheep. We are afraid that they are going to graze in fields that don't belong with us, don't belong to us. Should we sell the sheep and enter Israel? Or, is it, or, or, is it, or should we just take a chance and go in? Meaning, why give up and sacrifice the land of Israel? But, they, but their priorities were, were incorrect. That's not what they did. They lost out on, on dwelling in the land, being connected with the rest of the Jewish people, they preferred their sheep over their inheritance and their children. And it's evident in the, in the request that they told Moshe. We're going to stay here. We're going to build enclosures for our sheep and cities for our children. So you're mentioning the sheep before the children. Who's more important? So that character flaw was related to what? It was related to their possessions. It was related to their money and to their wealth. They were tzaddikim that were concerned about theft, but money was the Achilles heel. So why did Reuven go out to the field during the harvest season? Another question, why? Yaakov wasn't wealthy. Yaakov was very well. All the Avot were very, very rich. Uh, he was able to provide food for the family. So, so was he asked to go to the end to collect scraps because they didn't have money? That's what usually the poor people did. They wait till the end and they grab what was, what was left over. Of course not. The fact that he went looking was an early sign of a natural inclination of chemdat mamon, to chase after money. I want to tell you a story that's not true, but the case is a true case that is discussed in the Gemara. There was a, a non-Jew in Europe, in Germany, and he wished to convert. And he went up to the local Bedin and, uh, in Berlin, and now I want to convert. Yeah, there's a process. 
Why do you want to convert? How, uh, how you, know, you know, this is not easy to be a Jew. It's dangerous to be a Jew. You know, look at the anti-Semitism. Are you sure you want to do this? And they start convincing him not to become a Jew. They delayed, they deterred, but he was persistent. I want to learn, I want to learn. And he started learning the laws of Brachot and the laws of Shabbat and the laws of Mitzvot. He absorbed it all. And then again, he comes to them, he says, I'm ready. Go, nah, listen, are you sure you want to do this? Like, you know, a lot of people, they're not going to accept you. There's a lot of communities that don't accept you. know, it's kind of hard for you to get married, you know, because they're going to say, oh, he's a gear, you know, so are you sure you really want to do this? And no, no, I want, I want, I want. So uh, uh, he insisted. He converted. He went to the mikveh. He got his Hebrew name. And he went to deeper learning. And he started now learning Gemara, Mishnah Berurah. He built a beautiful family. He got married. He had children. Wonderful. One day, he gets a phone call. A call from another city in Germany that his father had died. His biological father had died. And he traveled to the funeral where they read out the will. And one million euros was left for each one of his children. Now, what's the problem? That the fact that he's a convert, a ger, your biological parents are not your halachic parents. So does he still have a right to the one million euro or not? So he called up his rabbi in Israel, told him what took place. He says, listen, I know that as a convert, it's like I'm newly born. And my parents are not, are not my parents. In fact, one of his siblings knew this, okay, and already was challenging this guy's share in the inheritance. He converted to Judaism. He doesn't deserve anything. So we got to bring this to a beddin. So now the guy's thinking, this money, it's a halom, it's a dream. There's no way I'm going to get this money. Like, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a convert. So the Gemara Masechet Kiddushin, brings down this case. And the Gemara tells us that even though according to Din Torah, the convert is like a newborn and does not inherit, he is nonetheless allowed to receive the money that was left to him. Why, says the Gemara? Look what the Gemara answers. Crazy answer. What's the rationale? Why are we giving him the money if that father is not really his father according to Halakha? It's his biological father, always will be. But according to Halakha, he's not his father. So why does he get the, mil the million euros? And says the Gemara, because if he doesn't receive that money, he is liable to abandon the Torah and go back to his previous life. That's what money does. That's the power of money. A person who's willing to leave everything and face every challenge for the sake of Torah and, and mitzvot, if there's money placed in front of him on the table, all bets are off. Yeah, yeah, I'm done. See you later. Goodbye. I give it all up. I have my million euros waiting for me in my bank account. So therefore, say, give him the money. We want to keep him as a Jew, give him the money. And that's Chemdat Mamon. It's an it's a insurmountable test. Even for the even for the tzaddikim. So says the Sabah of Kelm, it's one thing when one person works hard for their money and considers that sum earned to be a direct product of their labor. Right? You earn fifteen thousand uh, dollars or shekel a month. Or, you know, $5,000 a month. Someone comes to you and says, I need $2,000. So you say, listen, you're asking me for, uh, you know, two-fifths of, of what I work in a month. You're asking, That's a lot of money. I don't know if I can give you that. It's difficult. But back to our situation. How much did B'nai Isa work for their money? Zero. Ephes. The money came from God. More than that. They got double and triple amounts were loaded onto their donkeys. And yet HaKadosh Baruch Hu has to plead? 
He has to plead with them for a donation. It requires a language of pius, of appeasement. Why is that? They didn't earn this money. So says the Sabah of Kelm, this is a result. The reason is because of the Shiga'on Shel Kesef. It's a Chemdat Mamon, it's a madness of money. As soon as a person has money or the money reaches a person's hand, whether it was earned or not, it's impossible to, tr- to, to part with. So giving teruma, giving a, a donation, it's like I'm donating an organ. Oh, wait, I, I got to think about this for a moment. I got to really think. Do I want to give part with this money? You didn't even earn it. You got it. You, you know, you, 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 it was given to you as a gift. Why are you even thinking about this? If you want to take someone's organ, you got to put them to sleep, right? Because no one's going to willingly have to do it. You have to soothe them. You convince them. You know, it's, it's okay. You know, you could still survive with one, one kidney. Don't worry. Da, da, da. You know? But B'nai Israel were poor slaves in Mitzrayim. They came with nothing. So HaKadosh Baruch Hu really needs to beg. And not only that, he writes, the whole, the future reward that we receive in Shamayim, he says, comes as a result of abstaining from this, from this desire of money. Because Haneshamalach Veaguselach. The, the soul belongs to you and so does the body belong to you. Our body, our mouth, our ears all belong to Hashem. We, we're using His body that He gave us, that He put the Neshama in our body to do work, receive reward, and not to keep it holy, not to do Averot, not to do any forbidden acts. And we are abstaining from this and that's how we're getting reward. HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, look at this sickness called Chemdat Mamon. We receive reward in heaven from abstaining from it. And hence, that's why he needed to appease. That's why he needed to come and say, give me something. Just give me something. So now, if you look closer, HaKadosh Baruch Hu wanted that the sockets, the pedestals, which the Mishkan stood, the pedestals were on the ground where the beams were sitting. Um, that needed to be a product of exactly half shekel. Everybody gave half shekel, and that money went to the pedestals. The Mishkan, however, we said, was the third type of donation, which was arbitrary. From whatever man wants to give, he gives. Every person, whatever his heart desires. The Gemara tells us, well, so why is this the case? The Gemara tells us that there are two types of mitzvot. There is a mitzvah that you do because you were commanded, and then there's a the mitzvah that you do that you weren't commanded. Okay? So now what's better? What's greater? Gemara asks, what's greater? To do something for God when I'm not commanded to do it or to do it when I am commanded to do it? So the Gemara famously says, opposite what most people think, Gadol yoter Greater is the one who is commanded to do a mitzvah and performs it than the one who is not commanded and performs it. So again, our intellect would dictate the opposite. Oh, it's better that, that I'm doing it on my own free will. Look, I'm serving God. You didn't even ask me. Right? Look, mom, I cleaned the whole kitchen. You didn't even ask me to do it. Versus the, 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 the one who had to be yelled at to clean the kitchen. So why, why are we saying that it's the one that was commanded gets is greater, bigger reward? So Tosfot gives one of the, probably the most famous answer. And he says that the one who's commanded is constantly worried about overcoming the Yetzirah and fulfilling a mitzvah. Because when you're commanded to do it, now you have a Yetzirah. Commanded to go to shul. My dad says go to shul, but I want to hope I'm tired. So you have a Yetzirah there, so now you've got to overcome the Yetzirah. 
So a person who always fulfill, who fulfills a mitzvot, he displays a level of awe, of fear, of reverence to do that mitzvah. Imagine you live in a, in a city where there are only a few Jews. And there's only one minyan in the morning, 6.30 in the morning, let's say. Six, that's the only minyan you have in the city. Now, if you wake up at 5, can you go back to sleep? I can't go back to sleep. Because I fear that if I go back to sleep, I won't, I'm going to miss a minyan. There's, not, there's no 7, there's no 8 o'clock. If I miss it, I miss it. So this is the observant Jew. He's always living in fear that he's going to miss the opportunity to do mitzvah. A, a, a Jew that wants to buy a beautiful etrog, he's not going to buy five minutes before the holiday of Sukkot begins. Already from the month of Elul, he's calling up the guy, hey, listen, you know, Rav Kohen, like I need this etrog, you're going to save me a good etrog. He's, he, he's setting up in motion. A week before Rosh Hashanah, he goes to the warehouse, he has it set up, if he doesn't have his etrog, forget about Rosh Hashanah, his whole, his whole mind's going to be off. On the flip side, you have people that even though they're commanded to act, they never feel pressure to do so. They're going to buy their lulav and etrog at 5.15 p.m. and the, the holiday starts at 6. Okay, they go to the market after everyone's got home and they get themselves a good deal. So what does the concept of eno say, not commanded to do so, yet he does, what does that refer to? To one who does mitzvot out of love. Love for God. Because even though they're not specifically commanded to do it, but I'm going out and doing it. Someone who loves HaKadosh Baruch Hu so much that on Friday, even though Mincha starts at 5.45, I'm going to be at Shul at 5 o'clock. Look, God, I'm going to take out a book and he's going to read patiently until the Minyan comes. And when Shabbat ends at 7, I'm not out of there at 7.01. I'm going to relax. I'm going to, think, I'm going to enjoy the last few moments of Shabbat. I'm going to take my time in the environment of Abed Knesset. That's a person who loves HaKadosh Baruch Hu. They're ready for Shabbat early, their table set, they're not rushing, right? They want it, it's like the, the, like the hotel room, right? I'm going to stay here as long as I can. I'm not going to really rush to check out if I don't have a flight, right? I'm just going to stay as long as I can. So there is a positive aspect in performing mitzvot that are not uh, specifically commanded because it demonstrates a person's love and devotion for Hashem. But on the other hand, there's also a positive aspect to performing mitzvot that we were commanded to do because that shows awe. That shows reverence for Hashem. And both types of actions reflect a person's love and devotion um, to Hashem in different ways. Now, look at the chidush the Sabah Mikam says. The entire existence of mitzvot that the angels do, the commandments that the angels fulfill, does not stem from any sort of ahava, of a love for their creator. It's all awe, it's all reverence, fear. We say every day in Shachrit that the, that the angels, onim ve'omrim They cover their face in fear and they say with reverence. Everything with the angels is, this is my, this is my, this is my, uh, my mission, I'm on a mission, and I gotta listen to God because this is what he's telling me to do. And the Ramchal actually expands on this a lot in, in Mesilat uh, Yesharim, where we see that he talks about the angels that, that tremble and quake constantly due to the exaltedness of Hashem, and, they're, and they're, they're, they're sweating, whatever that means, okay, because they really, really fear HaKadosh Baruch Hu, because everything they do is in awe and reverence. But we human beings who come from Afar Min Adama, we come from the dust of the earth, and we return to dust, we were given a unique opportunity to serve HaKadosh Baruch Hu in a combination of two ways. We can serve God with love and we can also serve God 
with fear. So the idea of the Gemara, when the Gemara says, Gadol that greater is a person who performs something when he's commanded to versus the person who is not commanded to do it, that is from the per- perspective of Yira, of fear. When I'm looking at it in the realm of fear, then yes, it's greater to perform the action only once I was told to do, because I'm living through fear. But from the perspective of Ahava of God, of loving God, greater is a person who was not commanded to do it and did it anyway. So let's put it all together now. If Akados Baruch Hu was to instruct everyone to donate money to the Mishkan, if the third donation was the same as the first two, I want everybody to give $2,000 to the Mishkan. Everybody the same amount. Just like everybody gave half a shekel, everyone's got to give 2000 If that was the case, then what was going to happen? The entire Mishkan would be built solely out of Yirah. It will be solely out of fear. But HaKadosh Baruch Hu wanted the Mishkan to be built not just out of Yirah, but also out of Ahava. So what did he do? First, he commanded B'nai Yisrael to give half a shekel twice. And that for the foundation, because the foundation of Avodat Hashem is based on fear. In the end of the day, Gadol HaMetzuveh Be'oseh. I serve God because He commands me to do it. I have my 613 mitzvot. That's what makes Judaism Judaism, is our Torah and mitzvot. So the foundation has to be something that is, that is actually commanded. Half a shekel, everybody's got to give. And what comes next? Then, to, when it comes to the whole Mishkan, everybody can give what they want. Everyone can give generously. Nobody was forced. Nobody felt any fear in their decision to donate. Says This is the meaning of the Pasuk that we say in Shira Shirim. The King Shlomo made himself a canopy from the timbers of the Lebanon. The pillars were made out of silver, the covering was gold, and the curtain of purple wool. But the interior, the center, the core of the Mishkan, the core of the Mikdash, that was bedecked with Ahava, it was bedecked with love. You know why? Because it was given for people's heart. It wasn't something that was, that was commanded $2,000 per person, whatever you want to give. If $100 is going to do it for you, then it's going to do it for you. If a million dollars is going to do it for you, then a million dollars is what's going to make you happy. It's going to make you come closer to Hashem. The center of the Mishkan, the Tochosh of Mishkan, needed to be built from love and with love. Bilvavim Mishkan Evnem. Each member of Klal Israel has a Mishkan in his heart. We have a Mishkan inside of us, a home for our Kadosh Baruch Hu. And that Mishkan is built from two parts. Its foundation is built from fear, and that's what we use to go on and perform mitzvot. But the core is built solely from love. And when we observe our mitzvot with the combination of both Ahava and Yir'ah, love and fear, HaKadosh Baruch Hu will bless us. Bezat Hashem will be zocheh to merit to see the building of the third Bet HaMikdash. Amen. Thank you, everybody. Have a wonderful night.